1: I'm Rachel Wadham and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today we'll be exploring the world of diversity in literature. Our first two guests will be Adam Gidwitz and Rachel Kamen and we'll talk about a book called The Inquisitor's Tale. Our last guest will be John Austinson, and we'll discuss diversity in young adult literature. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have a review of I Am Malala in story time and some author tips. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world.
0: world.
1: Here at Rachel's World, I'm always on the lookout for unique and interesting books. Every year there are always books that surprise and intrigue me, but I'm especially excited when I find a really unique alphabet book. The staple of children's literature can be pretty unappealing when authors consistently use the same old words for the same old letters. You can only read so many books with X for X-ray after all. This is why I was so excited to find a particularly unique alphabet book called Awake, Beautiful Child by Amy Krauss Rosenthal and illustrated by Gracie Lamb. Amy Krauss Rosenthal, who was lost to the children's book world recently when she passed away from cancer, has been one of the most innovative and creative authors of children's books in the past decade. She always thought outside of the box and found new ways to engage us with everyday things like peas, spoons, chopsticks, and even exclamation marks. Her creativity also shines through with her out-of-the-box alphabet book that only uses the three letters A, B, and C. Each page relates the story with a changing phrase made up of three words that follow the A, B, C pattern. Following the children throughout their day from waking up to going to bed, each three-word phrase describes what's going on. The pictures add great depth to the story by giving us further information about what the children are doing. Along with the constrained word structure used, the illustration also uses a limited color palette, each one containing at most three colors and white. This gives both the text and the pictures a very sparse feel, but combining them together adds great depth and beauty the author and illustrator don't sacrifice anything through their constraints, which welcomely allows the story and pictures to flow beautifully. Packed with creativity, this book will expand children's experience with language in such a way that they may want to take up Amy's book challenge offered at the end to write and illustrate their own ABC book. Rachel's World here on Worlds Awaiting, we love to bring on guests and talk about topics that we are all passionate about. Right now, we are particularly passionate about one book called The Inquisitor's Tale. Today, we're on the phone with the author of that book, Adam Gidwitz. Welcome, Adam. Hello. Hello. Adam, I am very excited today to introduce you to our listening audience, particularly one of my all-time favorite books, The Inquisitor's Tale, which was a Newbery honor book and um, just so exciting and interesting. So to start out, why don't you try to explain this book to our audience? Because I always have a hard time... trying to explain to people what this book is about. So I would love to hear how you tell people what is The Inquisitor's Tale.
2: Well, um, first of all, thank you, Rachel, for saying that it's one of your all-time favorite books. I am truly humbled and honored. As for explaining what it's about, this is just, it's a big book and it's a complex book. When I, Whenever I have a new book come out, my wife and I always practice my um, sort of elevator pitch about it when somebody says, oh, what's your new book about and I try to get it down to a couple of sentences. We practiced this one for months and then I just gave up. So let me just see if I can summarize it quickly now that it's been out for a year and I've been talking about it for over a year. It's about three children who live in the middle ages in France, a girl who has visions of the future, a boy with incredible strength, another boy who can heal people's wounds, um, and a holy dog. And the reason the dog is holy is because, spoiler alert, in the first chapter of the book, the dog dies. The dog in chapter two comes back to life because I hate it when dogs die in books. It's the worst thing ever. And it's only okay if you bring them right back to life. So the three magical children and their holy dog are chased across France first by a monk, then by knights, then by the king himself. And the book is about the collision of religions and cultures that was taking place in the high middle ages in France.
1: That is a perfect way to describe it, much better than I do. I have a hard time describing this book because it is so complex.
2: But yes, and it, I left out The Farting Dragon. The so Farting I really Dragon, didn't describe that's an even book better <laughs>
1: We need to mention the farting dragons. That is very important. Particularly, right. If there's particularly, no farting dragons readers. in the
2: synopsis, then you really missed the point of the Inquisitor's
1: important <laughs> the, the, the important points of the book. Well, and that's one of the things, uh, of all of the things I love, there's several things, but one of the things I do love is the humor. You don't seem to take yourself very seriously in this book, and I think you could take it very, you know, over the top seriously, because it, there are some heady subjects with religion and the Inquisition and... And, um, you know, people not appreciating other people and very much this this sense of, you know, how do we get along as a community? But you use this wonderful sense of humor to take those issues that are very, very serious and make them fun and playful. So why why is it that you do that? Why do you take these very serious issues and then add in this humor? What What do you think that brings to the story for you?
2: It's a great question. I think it comes from two different sources that dovetail really nicely and one of the reasons why it felt right in this book to use um, a lot of humor and that kind of, you know, often silly, sometimes gross, surprising humor. The first is I was a teacher. I was a teacher for eight years, and I quickly discovered as a teacher that the way that I could get the kids to open their ears and hear what I was saying and not, you know, sound like the Peanuts teacher droning on at them was by making them laugh first. So um, in general, when I'm trying to get somebody to hear what I'm saying, I try to uh, surprise them with something maybe a little funny or unexpected, because I feel like when we're laughing, it's a way of relaxing our defenses. And usually it's also a way of our brain indicating, like, this is something unexpected, pay more attention. So I think humor is uh, the most effective, if not teacher, then sort of um, segue to teaching. The other reason is that um, we often think of the Middle Ages as a very dry time, you know, a bunch of like white dudes who were never allowed to do anything fun is usually like the way one thinks of the Middle Ages. Um, but in fact, it was like a zany, weird, body time. And they had, because they didn't have some big, you know, any kind of media, you know, their books were all handmade and handwritten. There were also no rules about what you did in a book. Um, and so... You know, you often have, you know, crazy beasts in a book. Um, You know, you have, uh, you know, monkeys eating their own arms. One of my favorite illuminations is of a monk who's giving a lecture, um, and and the words of the book are his lecture. Um, And clearly the illuminator of the manuscript didn't agree with what the monk said because he drew the monk speaking – And pointing up at his own words. But he also had the monk's robes pulled up. And someone was shooting the monk um, with a crossbow in the monk's butt. So that was like the um, spirit of the Middle Ages. Both simultaneously heady and theological and philosophical. And also like zany. Um, And so it dovetailed really well with my teaching philosophy and my personality.
1: I think you capture that kind of dovetailing of the serious and the humor so perfectly in this book. And one of the delightful additions in this particular book is the illustrations that are done in that kind of illuminated-esque style that allow that wonderful addition of the humor in there. How was that working with that kind of collaborative process to, to bring illustrations to this book?
2: So it was really fun. The illuminator of the book, I call him the illuminator, um, is uh, Hatem Ali. He's a Muslim guy from Egypt who now lives in Canada. Um, He's a wonderful illustrator. And my initial idea for the book was not to have it illustrated. Um, I was going to have marginalia, uh, comments in the margins, commenting on the text. Um, My idea was to have three characters commenting on the book in the text, um, a historian, a theologian, and myself. Adam Gidwitz, the author, commenting on the story as it was being told. And I wrote the first draft that way. And I quickly realized that it was, or not that quickly, because it took I wrote the whole first draft like that. The book was pretty much unreadable um, because you couldn't get through a page in less than 15 minutes. You know, you read the page and then you read all the marginalia in the page and then you went back to the thing in the page. It didn't work as a story, even though it was a cool idea. But it was important to me to have those multiple perspectives on the same page because one of the primary events of the book is about the, the Jewish Talmuds. So in France in 1242, King Louis IX, also known as St. Louis, after whom the city St. Louis is named, was, he was a wonderful king in a lot of ways, but he gathered all of the Talmuds of France together into the center of Paris um, and burned them. And probably 20,000 volumes of Talmud were burned in that way. So the book is about these three magical children and their holy dog trying to prevent the burning of the Talmud. So I wanted my book to be like a Talmud. If you're not familiar with a Jewish Talmud, the way it works is they have a central text, which is interpretation of the Torah, and then texts, um, words around the side from different scholars, different thinkers, arguing with, debating the central text. And so I wanted my book to also have multiple perspectives in the margins. So if my marginalia was going to bog the story down and make it unreadable, um, I thought I should move to illuminations. Like I was giving the example with the, the monk who's getting shot with a crossbow in the butt. The illuminators often express their opinions about the text, too. Um, and so I figured it would be interesting if Hattam would do that. So I invited Hattam to illustrate things that were in the book that he wanted to draw And then also doodle in the margins and also disagree, contradict what I had written with his drawings. Um, And he did all of those things um, to, I think, marvelous effect.
1: I couldn't agree more that it is totally marvelous effect. and, And I love that there's a conversation going on between the two of them. And that conversation to me adds great depth to one of the central ideas that again is one of those things that really makes this book stand out for me, and that is the religious aspect of this book. I think a lot of scholars um, look at children's literature and they they see kind of religion as the taboo topic. I mean, we we address almost everything in children's literature, but very rarely religion. And here you address religion in in a wide scope and a multiple multiple kinds of religion and interactions between religious characters of different types. Why was it important to you to make that um, a central theme, not not only because of the time period, but also because of your own experiences and then the story you were trying to tell?
2: Right. Um, there were multiple reasons why I needed to address religion and really take it very seriously as a central piece of this book and this history. First of all, just speaking to the history The Middle Ages were a deeply religious time. Um, The way that we are a deeply technological time, they were equally religious. There are a lot of kids' books out there that take place in the Middle Ages in which religion is barely mentioned or comes up as sort of um, a glancing reference to a holiday or a saint, but in which it's not really an issue. Those feel to me um, necessarily inaccurate. It would be like writing a book that took place in 2018 and never mentioning any piece of technology like a car or a computer or a television screen. Um, You could do it, but any reader from today would know that you were intentionally omitting things. So there's that. But on a personal level... My wife is a professor of medieval history. She studies um, Christianity and the development of the imagery um, of Jesus um, around the turn of the millennium um, in the, the 11th century. And I'm Jewish, and we just had a daughter, and we were discussing how we wanted to raise our daughter. And so we have been—I have been very involved in Jewish um, practice and, and thought over the last really six years um, since we got married as we figured out who we are and how we wanted to live. And so I found, I thought the Inquisitor's Tale, it turned out to be a really great avenue for me to wrestle with some of the most difficult questions um, that I had been thinking about. First and most obviously, the problem of evil. You know, Why would bad things happen even to good people? And other questions too. Um, So the Inquisitor's Tale was a chance for me to wrestle with those and give not answers, but responses maybe.
1: I, I truly appreciate that as a woman of faith myself i I really loved reading this book and seeing your honest depictions of of characters' faiths and as they interacted with each other. and that is that is one of the main reasons that I love this book so much because it it really expresses many of the things I feel about my own faith in in a children's book which i don't often see very much so it was it very much spoke to me at a very personal level and i think that particularly for for people who are interested in those kinds of really deep philosophical questions that religion can offer this book just offers a great connection to those types of things one last question as we close up our interview today what do you hope would be foundational to what a reader might take away from this book. I've I've kind of described what I took away from it, but as you think about your readers and what you would like them to see, is, is there something uh, at essence from this book that you would hope that readers would take away?
2: You know, that's a great and difficult question. The book is big enough and, and I hope complex enough um, that there are many valid things to take from this book. But if I had to just say one um, for the sake of giving you an answer, I would probably turn back to the inscription in the book, the um, the quotes at the beginning of the book, because they sort of became the central theme of the book. And they're both from poems that are not medieval, but that sort of spoke directly to probably most essentially to uh, what the book is about. I'm happy to share those two quotes if if I can. Yes, please. So the first is from Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem, Pied Beauty. Glory be to God for dappled things, all things counter, original, spare, strange. And then from W.H. Auden's As I Walked Out One Evening, you shall love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. So the complexity of the world, the variegated nature of the world, how we are each so different in our religions and our skin colors and our cultures and ethnicities and our just personal, you know, and our personalities from person to person and our obligation um, to love one another with our crooked hearts. um, I think that's about that's about as essential as it gets for me.
1: And a perfect way to describe it. It is an amazing book. So all you listeners out there, if you haven't checked out The Inquisitor's Tale, I highly suggest you get a copy. Thank you, Adam, for writing such an amazing book. And I will look forward to maybe some others along these lines coming out someday. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much, Adam. Adam Gidwitz is an award-winning author before we move into part two of our discussion on the Inquisitor's Tale, it's time for story time. Today we have a book review by Kylie Moffat for the book I Am Malala.
3: My name is Kylie Moffitt. This semester I took a children's literature course and I was able to explore many different genres of children's books. This gave me the opportunity to read through potential books for my future classroom. I want to focus, however, on one book in particular. It is called, I am Malala, the girl who stood up for education and was shot by the Taliban. This is a biography about a girl named Malala Yousafzai who grew up in Swat, which is a village in Pakistan. Malala wrote this book to share her story with the world and give a glimpse of her country and her life there. In her story, Malala talks about her family. In particular, she mentions her father. He was a very influential person in her life, being a teacher and starting a school in their village. Malala paints the picture of what life was like with the Taliban, the political unrest, and the fighting that took place in her own hometown. She describes how hard it was for a girl to receive education. And as she matured, she tells how many of her female friends had to quit school. Through all of the fear and afflictions that her family went through, Malala showed courage and fought for what she thought was important. She spoke out for girls and the necessity of education, which was dangerous at the time. However, Malala knew that she had been given her talents and her voice to speak up for what she valued. She said, education is education. We should learn everything and then choose which path to follow. Education is neither eastern nor western. It is human. I think that Malala did well in weaving history of Pakistan in with the stories of herself and her family to help the reader understand her cultures and her values. I learned more about Pakistan and the Muslim religion while I was reading this book. This story is recommended for children that are at least 10 years old because of the situations and events that are described. As a future educator, I want to provide diverse books for my students to learn how crucial education is and to learn about other peoples and cultures. I think that this book is a beneficial way to show students to reflect on the significance of education and learn how to view other people's perspectives and actions. This story of Malala's journey accomplishes the task of helping the reader think about the hard situation the people in the Valley of Swat and the country of Pakistan were going through. Malala also helped permit the reader to understand things from her own perception and dispel any preconceived notions or stereotypes. I adored seeing how Malala portrays the meaningfulness of education, which I think is something a lot of people take for granted. I enjoyed having my eyes open to ponder about ways to help those that do not have the luxury of being educated. I also thought about how I can enable my future students to understand the value of education, just as Malala helped her readers do so.
1: Now, it's always interesting to hear different viewpoints of our favorite novels. We just talked with Adam Gidwitz, the author of the award-winning book, The Inquisitor's Tale. We heard a bit about his process and why he wrote it. Now, I have librarian Rachel Kamen on the phone with me to discuss more about this excellent book. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, how are you? I am so well, Rachel, and I am very excited today to have you tell us a little bit about your experiences with one of my favorite books. So to introduce it to our listening audience, the book is The Inquisitor's Tale by Adam Gidwitz. So to start out, Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about the
4: book from your perspective? Sure, sure. So The Inquisitor's Tale, and I think the subtitle is important, or The Three Magical Children and Their Holy Dog. um, It won the uh, Newbery Honor Book and also won the Association of Jewish Libraries' Sydney Taylor Book Award last year, and that's an award given by the Association for the Best Jewish Children's Book of the Year. So, um, you know, that's kind of rare that that happens, that a book is honored by the Newbery Committee for being one of the best children's books of the year, and then it's also honored by the Sydney Taylor Committee for being the best Jewish children's book of the year. So, um, so of course, it was at the top of my to read pile when it came out. And it's just this amazing book that blends historical facts and legends and fantasy all together. And, it, you know, it's also got a holy dog and a farting dragon and swords and adventure but at the heart of it is these three children: Jean, William, and Jacob. And Jean is a peasant girl, a Christian peasant girl. And William is a monk, and Jacob is a Jewish boy. And they are living in medieval France. And they are kind of on a quest to save the Talmuds from being burned in the center of Paris by the royal family. So it's it's a kind of a complicated plot, and it's done with multiple narrators, kind of in a Canterbury tale type um, structure, but I actually listened to it on audiobook with my children, and it was an absolutely amazing audiobook experience. So I highly recommend it as an audiobook. Then, of course, after the audiobook, I read it. I read it in print as well, but I highly recommend the audiobook experience.
1: That is an amazing summary of the book. It it is very complicated. And I think sometimes with this book, it's hard for me to describe it because it is so complex and there's so many pieces of it that I think sometimes it sounds not as good as it is (laughs) because we're trying to reduce it. (laughs) But then I also love that there's this easy sell piece of it. But then there's also this wonderful kind of deeper piece to it that does make it a very religious book. And I I don't think we often get religion well portrayed in kind of mainstream children's literature. So one of the things I love about this book is the fact that it portrays all three of these religions in, in a very, you know cognizant way. And and all of the children interact, and they, they are able to work together to reach this very important goal. And that, I think, is a very timely message for our society today. Would you agree?
4: Yes, yes. And I think one of the things that you can talk about is what it means to be a religious person, and how each of these children, even though their faith traditions are different, they're their views of what it means to be a religious person are very similar. And, um, you know, he mixes in theology from so many different sources. One of the things that I talked about with my students was he quotes from the Talmud, whoever destroys a single life destroys the whole world, and whoever saves a single life saves the whole world. So talking about how that has meaning in the story, but then talking about how that has meaning in today's world and what that can mean to us. So there's just so much to talk about. And even just talking about the title and the word Inquisitor and what that means and the historical context of the Inquisition and the, you know, what does heretic mean? What does heresy mean? What does unorthodox mean? What does pagan mean? What does heathen mean? Martyr, martyr martyrdom, saint. I mean, these are all in there. And I don't think these are not concepts that my children really had been confronted with before reading this book.
1: Let, let's continue on that line. You did a program with your uh, your kids there at your library, and you you looked at this book very particularly. So describe for us what it was that you did, and what did you think the, the main outcome of working this closely with this book was?
4: Sure. So I, we were charged um, a couple years ago by the leadership of the synagogue. I work at North Suburban Synagogue Bethel with— um, the staff was charged with the challenge of creating programs that would combine and give opportunities for different segments of the congregation to interact with each other that don't normally, you know, typically interact with each other. So I have a very active, very um, strong sisterhood book club. Um, and so as you can imagine, most of it's, it's women. It's the sisterhood book club. We do get some men. but um, And they're of a certain age. They're mostly in the empty, empty nester, active retiree demographic. and um, And then we have this large, vibrant religious school that's K through 12. So Sometimes, you know, my sisterhood ladies don't necessarily interact. Their kids are not in the school anymore. They're not involved with the school. Um, Maybe some of them have grandchildren in the school, but often not. So how can we kind of bring these two groups together? And so I came up with the idea of of once a year um, having the sisterhood ladies read a children's book and meet with the religious school students to discuss the children's book. So, 2 years ago we did The Hired Girl by Laura Amy Schlitz, which was more of a YA novel, which was great. And then when I read The Inquisitor's Tale, I thought, "Oh, this is perfect for a family for a family book club." And we were able to, you know, because we were in a Jewish setting, we were able to really tackle some of these issues of 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 faith and theology and these big concepts with the kids.
1: So as you tackled those big concepts, what what were some of the things that you found or some of the things that the kids particularly or that the adults helped guide them find in this book? Well,
4: I think one of the things that we really debated was um, there's a quote in the novel, no matter how much wisdom is in a book, is it right to trade your life for it? So, you know, should these children or should anyone be risking their own lives to save these Talmuds? You know, what's more valuable, the, a book or a person's life? So, um, you know, we talked a lot about that, and of course, there's not really a right or a wrong answer to that. Um, and we also talked about the, the quote from uh, the German author Heinrich Hein, who, Adam Gidswitz quotes in the book, where they burn books, they will also ultimately burn people. And when you read the novel, the reader witnesses both of those things happening: people being burned and books being burned so um, you know and and Jacob and John and William do actually fail to save one of the monks, the monk Michelangelo, but they do manage to save five of the of the talmuds so um, you know the kids talked about a lot of that and, and what it means to burn books and and why you know, why someone would do that, why has that been done during history, and, and what power do books possess that, you know, makes burning them different from banning them, and, and you know, how does that affect us? So we, we just really had great, great conversations about that.
1: I, I the the theme there about burning the books and I think particularly from my own Christian background I that really spoke strongly to me about um the the Bible as we see it and particularly for your group in this Jewish kind of context as as we all, in these kinds of contexts, hold these scriptures to be very holy and very important. And and seeing how those things play out in this novel just makes it very interesting and brings up those really kind of ethical questions that I don't think a lot of people may have addressed, um, particularly in our day and age, because we don't always face the kinds of persecution that people have in the past. But that brings up this wonderful discussion of history and this wonderful discussion of of where we've come and who we are today, and then how can we continue to make it better? So this this lovely kind of moral continuum along those lines. Do you think that the adults in your conversation
4: saw these similar things? Oh, they loved it. And some of them are resistant. You know, they don't want to read a children's book. You know, they they think it's kind of maybe beneath them or it's not... Uh, you know, but they, I mean, they love, they could not believe it. And, and I always tell people that you should read at least one children's book a year, you know, and that we'd all be happier people too. I, mean, a I lot agree. Of this stuff we, totally agree. We do for book club tends to be, you know, it's a lot of dysfunctional families. It's a lot of, you know, deep and dark and heavy things, not happy endings, you know, that, that I always explain like a children's book and even a YA book, um, it, it usually it has to it doesn't have to have a happy ending but it always ends in hope you know, and adult books don't don't have to follow that rule. So um, the adults that read it and the parents that read it with their children really were so um, enthusiastic about it and really found that it was a worthwhile experience and, and even said, like, this isn't really a children's book. You know, like, it it isn't. It, you know, there's so much in there that make it um, thought-provoking and worthwhile for an adult reader. And especially some of my book club members, some of the adults who came without children, you know, they hadn't, I think it was so inspiring inspiring for them to hear these young kids who had taken the time to read this book, you know, not as a school assignment. This was an extracurricular thing, you know, that they came on their own kind of free will and they, they chose to do this and, and have this experience. I think it was really inspiring for them and, you know, gives you that feeling of, okay, we're going to be all right. Like the, the world is an okay place with these with these kids in it who are willing to read this book and talk about it and bring so much wisdom to it. So, and I think the other thing, I mean, back to the book burning is too, that Kids don't totally understand that like today, it's like if I burn this book, it's not lost forever. You know, we feel like we have records of everything now, but but in the in medieval France, if all of those Talmuds had been burned, then like the Talmud, it would be as if the Talmud had never existed. So, um, and I think that was important when the kids kind of realized that, like it's hard for us to imagine that in today's day and age, that you could really completely wipe something out, but that it it did happen.
1: That is one of those deep things that I think that this book really captures, and I am so appreciative of you coming on the show today and breaking down this wonderful book for us and breaking down your experience that you had with your congregation. I I think you met your goal to bring people together, and I am glad to say that it was together over this beautiful children's book that, that I hope many other people will now be interested to go out and read. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. Rachel Kamen is a librarian and book reviewer of Jewish children's literature. Now, let's hear some tips for writing from some of the diverse authors we've had on our show.
0: So my first tip is going to be uh, don't stop. That's the most important one. Um, As I have said in many interviews, Alice is book number six that I've written overall. And it's um, the most recent book that I wrote with the goal for publishing. So if I had stopped after uh, the rejections for any of those previous books, I wouldn't be here. Uh, So keep going. Um, Know that Anything you do work-wise is not a waste, even if you have to um, set a book aside, set a story aside. You wrote that, you learned things along the way, uh, you grew in your craft and it's never a waste. And uh, the last one would be to um, control what you can. There's a lot in publishing that is outside of one's control. The only thing that you can control indefinitely, like this is the thing that no one else can touch is the story. So write the best story that you can and trust your gut because it's going to know better than anybody else.
4: One is is develop a a habit of creation, uh, regardless of what you want to do, whether it's writing novels or doing comic books or making music create a habit of creation where you set aside some time on a regular basis to to work on your craft and uh, and just stick to that Like get get your friends or your mom or get somebody to help you stick with that and then two is don't ever let perfection get in the way of completion you know in the beginning I think all of us have this critic that tells us what we're creating is terrible you got to just find a way of shutting that down and and getting to the finish line, finishing that novel, finishing that song, finishing that graphic novel.
1: There are many definitions for what a young adult novel is and what it needs to have. Recently, there have been great discussions about a new need in young adult literature, and that's diversity. I have John Austinson, an expert in young adult literature, in studio with me today. So John, as a young adult literature scholar, you know that diversity has become really important. So tell me, what does it mean when we talk about diversity and young adult literature?
5: Well, I think um, the concerns right now about diversity have to do with the representations in, in literature, um, but also the uh, diversity of authors and authorship. So in the, in the movement that wants to see more diversity in both of these areas, they're talking about um, LGBTQ characters, about characters who represent people of color, a diversity in terms of gender. Uh, the people with disabilities, and then you know ethnic, cultural, and uh, religious minorities. This movement wants to see greater representation of characters and settings here, but also they're concerned that we need authors who represent these different groups, right? Because a long-running argument in young adult literature is who gets to write for these people, and can I, as an outsider to a certain culture or group? If I'm an outsider, do I have the right as well as the familiarity to write about a group? And I think that's an important discussion to have. But uh, that's all wrapped up in this, in these concerns, I think, about diversity.
1: It's a really complex issue. And mm-hmm. I, I know it's not a new issue per se. We've had this discussion for English language literatures, adult literatures right. for c- centuries, it seems. But why, why do you think then, though, it, this is particularly poignant for young adults in particular? Uh,
5: I think that for young adults, we care as a society, as a culture, a lot more about the art or the media that we put in front of young adults. We recognize that these books have power. They have power to shape the way we see the world the way we see ourselves, the way we interact with the world. And so I think uh, in that concern, we don't want to present young people with a monocultural view of the world in young adult literature for a number of reasons, but primarily because we want them to be able to see themselves reflected in the characters and the settings and the conflicts that they read about. And that's particularly poignant for young people. So we're worried about that. But I also think the other thing that we care a lot about is helping young people develop empathy. We've seen some, even some empirical research right, recently that shows that good literature can help us develop empathy. And I think the world could use a little more empathy. And so we think about young people reading about cultures or religions or whatever the group might be uh, that are different from them. We want to give them windows into these groups. We want those, But we want those to be authentic glimpses into these different groups. And so I, I think that's why we care so much about young people. We're so – sensitive to the way they're being raised and to the way they're learning about the world and about themselves.
1: That is so true. And I think that sensitivity kind of cuts both ways. It cuts the way that we want them to learn about it. But then it also cuts this way of we don't want them to learn about it, that there's some of these representations of the other that we are afraid of, right? right? Because we we don't want our teens or our children to be exposed to something that is either outside of our frame or something that we feel uncomfortable with. So it's this interesting dichotomy of that it, it's comfortable and we want the empathy, but it's also uncomfortable because it takes them outside of maybe our comfort zone as adults. So h- how do we kind of dress that, <laughs> that, that, com- that dichotomy, which is not an easy question to answer? <laughs>
5: no, but, but, you know, I think that if we are going to advocate for more diversity in young adult literature, we're going to have to be ready – to confront some things we're not very comfortable with. I think just I think it was just last year I read uh, Matthew Quick's book Forgive Me, Leonard Peacock. Wonderful book. Which is a wonderful book, but it's about a young man who's plotting to kill and then to kill himself. And right I think at the end he wants to commit suicide if I remember and you get really inside this young man's mind and it is unsettling. I finished that book and I was so grateful for the experience to read it, but I'm not sure that I would ever reread it because it was not a very comfortable place to be in. But it was an invaluable thing for me to read because it, I felt like, oh, here's a glimpse into someone who thinks very differently from me and who's – and and I developed a sense of understanding for how maybe he got where he was and for the very critical role that adults can play in these young people's lives. I'm not sure that I have a good answer for how we resolve that conflict, but I think we have to be willing to confront some of that discomfort. But I think it also needs to be authentic, and this gets us back to that discussion about who gets to write for whom. And and if if the racial or ethnic or, or, or gender uh, of, of these characters, their backgrounds, if it's stereotyped, if it's overly thin, if it's not authentic – then, then that's a problem. But when I read this book and, and others that have left me unsettled, part of why I felt unsettled is because of how authentic it felt.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you. That that unsettling is a good thing to help us kind of push our boundaries. But that aus- authenticity and uh-huh. the unsettling of that, that, that is a really interesting question to me because who is it to say that, It's an authentic portrayal because even in diverse situations, everybody's experience is so different. Mm -hmm. So how do we particularly as adults or teachers, how do we assess that kind of authenticity, especially when we're an outsider from the group? Again, I'm asking you really hard questions. (laughs) No,
5: but but they're very important questions, right? And and I think this is where I think the sort of limitations of the terms, the categories that we have – For diversity are particularly problematic. So to say, for instance, that, oh, you know, this book was written by Walter Dean Myers. He's African-American. Thus, it will represent the African-American experience to readers. Well, it will represent an African-American experience, right? Filtered through an author, filtered through his lived experience, all of that. So I, I think we have to help readers be critical readers. When they pick up a book about say, a a girl growing up in the 19th century, we need them to understand that this is one representation and that this is one author's view of all of that.
1: So, so true. And I think one of the things that falls into that for me is just a sense of time, because one of the kind of controversies we've been dealing with lately is this sense of there there is this view of how it was viewed historically but in modern times we look back on that and see this kind of diversity in a much different sense so how much of that historical experience is authentic to portray even though it's in contrast to our modern understanding of what this issue of diversity would be so there there's an interesting balance there too with the passage of time
5: well and and not just in terms of books that have, that were written 50 or 60 years ago but about historical fiction that set say 500 years ago i've been looking um, because i'm i'm doing some work with historical fiction and the and the idea of the narrator a lot of these narrators in historical fiction have remarkably progressive and modern sensibilities And some of that I think is important because it highlights the growth and and the progress that we've made as a culture. But sometimes I wonder what's the balance between historical authenticity, right? And, and what a character in the Middle Ages might think, for instance, say, about Jews or about women or, or or other subcategories that today we pride ourselves on being much more accepting about. In the Middle Ages, they weren't. So what does that say when we put characters in there who – feel more 20th or 21st century to us and and again i'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing it's but it comes back to this idea of we need to be critical readers right if this book was published in the 50s well let's consider the historical context in which the book was written if this book is set in the 1200s let's, let's consider that yeah let's talk about this narrator or these characters and how how we would see them in that context and Questions of authenticity are really difficult, right? Because my authenticity and your authenticity, it's very much this idea of Rosenblatt's reader response. What do I bring to the text? How do my experiences shape my response? And no one can talk about that but you as a reader. That's that's sort of your territory to stake out.
1: And I think that's an interesting point in all of this because it is so individual. And particularly when we work with teens and children and what they read, we have to accept their experience with the text yes. in a very different way than our experience might.
5: Yeah, yeah we, you're right. We have to be open to that. And I think it's – when there's a, a – a, a, sort of power or age differential between adult and teen, sometimes it can be hard for us to trust them and to let them be who they are and respond the way they want to respond. We've got to be careful about that, I think, as adults.
1: Yeah, I think that that's really one of the most important things as adults, especially when we're reading. They may not respond the same way that we respond Mm -hmm. or in the way that we might expect them to respond. Or hope they would, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, how do we... How do we take that into account? Uh, particularly as teachers, I think that's an interesting context because when we stand up in front of a class, we say, okay, this is essentially – I'm going to take you through this text in this way. And we have kind of some expectation of where they're going to experience it. But what if they don't experience it in that way?
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's such a good question. And, and
1: I like asking you tough questions, I know. John. <laughs>
5: um, you know, I, the, the first thought that comes to mind is that we, we need to use questions. We need to help – ask students questions and have them understand how questions work in relation to the way we respond to a text, those seem more neutral to me, right, than saying something like, oh, but what about this moment or what about this? That seems to be really kind of manipulative, although – Again, if, if we're trying to help young readers become more critical, we do sometimes have to help them see how the pieces in the text do not support maybe a certain interpretation or even a certain response. You know, Not every response is valid, but if we ask them gentle questions to help them consider maybe what they hadn't considered in the text, that I see as maybe a less manipulative way.
1: I like that. <laughs> I really like that. And I think this goes back to this sense of authenticity is, is we have yeah. to accept that their experience with the text is just as authentic as ours. That's and, very important. Yeah, yeah. And then help them guide them through that critical frame of saying, you know, you need to support that. You can't just pick it out of the air, but you yeah. need to support that or critically analyze why you're feeling that way.
5: And And maybe especially encourage them to think about what is not on the page. What is missing?
1: Which is often just as important as what is on the page. Yeah, very often. (laughs) Well, that's a great way to end. Thanks so much, John. You're welcome. John Austinson is a professor of English here at BYU. Now, join me as I go around the librarian's table with Megan to talk about diverse characters in young adult literature. Well, along these lines, tell us, you know, a couple of titles that you think are just really stellar as these kinds mm. of YA that that maybe push some boundaries, but do it in a really great way, and might open our eyes to some other experiences. Right?
6: Oh, there's so many. I know. <laughs> I know.
1: I hate <laughs> these kinds of the questions. Books I read. Yeah. <laughs> I hate these
6: kinds of questions, and I get to ask them all the time, which is which is kind of sad. <laughs> right. Um. Well, one book that I read recently was The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Beautiful book. Which Beautiful was an amazing book. book. It's yeah. going to be a film soon. I'm very excited about that coming I out. know.
1: I I've, I've been watching the trailers and stuff and I'm interested to see yeah. I'm interested to see how they translate it to the screen. It's going to be
6: it's going to be interesting. It will be interesting. <laughs> yeah. I did cry while watching the trailer, yeah. so I'm I'm sure yeah. it'll be pretty yeah. good. Yeah.
1: yeah. So um, tell tell everybody who haven't read it just a short synopsis of what it's about.
6: Right. So that book is about um a high school girl who is black And lives in a relatively black community but goes to a private school that is mostly white kids. And her parents did that so that she could get a good education and not have to worry about all of the things that happen in public high schools and black communities like drugs and alcohol and teen pregnancy and all of this. Um, And so she kind of lives this dual life. Um, But one day when she's at a party with all of her black friends from her home community, um, she's driving home with one of her male friends and they get pulled over by a police officer for not really any reason in particular it doesn't really explain um and At one point, the police officer believes that this male friend is pulling a gun and shoots him and kills him. And so this main character, this girl, she witnesses her friend's death, which she believes to be unjust by a police officer, um, and struggles throughout the rest of the book whether she should testify against this police officer in court, whether she should raise her voice with some of these other social justice activism groups, or if she should just try and keep her head down and keep quiet about what's going on. and so this book is so interesting because that's what's happening. And like you would think that's a real story of something that actually happens today. Um, and so I think it's a great way for teenagers, both black and white or whatever nationality, to be exposed to what these black teens think, how why they're afraid of the police, mm-hmm. why they're torn up about what they should say about it or how they should feel. Um And it's good, especially for, you know, white kids like me to understand what that feels like and to understand a different perspective outside of myself that I've never had to worry about being pulled over by a police officer or anything like that. Yeah.
1: One of the things I love about that book is I think sometimes when we see these things on the news, the heightened emotions of it and the new, you know, the little Mm -hmm. short clips that we get on the news of people talking about it really don't tell the whole story, right. the impact and the, what the feelings that people are going through and how they work through those feelings. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I love about this story is because it takes us through that whole journey. Yeah. It's not just a sound bite on the news, mm-hmm. right, of somebody saying, you know, this was unjust or, you know, seeing, you know, the aftermath in, in, you know, people rising up to protest and those types of things. But we see that whole kind of continuum of how do I work through this and how do I work through this with my friends and how do right. I work through this with my family. So I love that context with that book that it gives us kind of the whole gamut of feelings from beginning to end instead mm-hmm. of the sound bites we sometimes get in in the context of real life situations like that. Right. Yeah, it's a good. Other ones you want to recommend? Oh man. Um, See, again, I asked the hard question. <laughs> yeah. Are there any that you've read recently that maybe that'll. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now you're turning it back on me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> along those lines. Oh, wow. Again, there's tons and tons of ones that I have read recently um, that I think are are really kind of edgy along, along those lines. Um... <laughs> yeah. And you ask, and I can't even think. Oh, I did
6: think of another one. Okay. You, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, because, I'm, i I'm, I'm kind of processing through three or four and thinking, right. okay, which which one was the one that I would totally recommend? Uh-huh.
6: <laughs> so this one, this one was interesting. It's called The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. Oh, okay. By Kenzie that's Lee. that's one of the ones
1: I was thinking okay. of too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And it's so, very that's a very unique one for yeah. a lot of reasons. Yeah.
6: It's unique because it's historical fiction. Yeah. Um, and it's about a teenage boy. I think he's eighteen, and he's going off on his tour of the continent in what the 1740s 17, I think 1700 yeah 1700
1: yeah, 1740 1750 around there I think yeah. yeah yeah
6: and so he like many boys of his age at the time from England is going on this tour of the European continent and he's going with his best friend who he has a major crush on so he's bisexual um, and he also is trying to I don't know use this tour as an escape from his very abusive father that he has um, and so this book, at first I thought it was just, you know, like a romantic comedy, kind of interesting thing because it's historical fiction, but the two characters are gay. Um, but it also tackled some issues like epilepsy and mental illness, which was very interesting that um, the people of the 1750s in England thought that epilepsy was like a sign of insanity or a sign that demons were possessing you. So that was interesting to kind of take you through the historical fiction and have that, you know, disability um, vantage point or viewpoint or whatever, but also, you know, the homosexuality in Europe in the 1700s, how that was seen as also a form of madness almost Mm -hmm. or mental instability. Um, And then as well as the uh, family that was not very good, his abusive father um, and getting that perspective. So there was a lot going on in the story that I hadn't anticipated. I thought it was very interesting, more than just an adventurous romp. Yeah. Um, Through England,
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Well, and when you look at the cover of that book, and you look at that—that's the way I felt about it when I first saw it. I'm like, oh, this is going to be like Jane Austen, you know, kind of esque for, you know, that kind of romp, romantic comedy kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But it's much deeper than that. Yeah, it's much, much deeper than that. And it it has gotten a lot of praise and a lot, um, tons of readers that really connect with that book for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know a lot of the the fiction that we see written about gay characters um, tends to be more contemporary right um, And so it's unique in that way too that it, it's it's fairly rare I mean it's out right. there but it's fairly rare that we see those issues addressed in a historical, in historical context right which is which makes it even more intriguing right to see mm-hmm. the different kinds of attitudes and that type of thing right. um, and I like that even though it addresses it in kind of the context of the seventeen hundreds there is a sense of i I'm trying to think of the right word, there is a sense of that this is okay that it's not it's right. n- it's it's making it be. Not as negative as it probably would have been in the 1700s, right? right. So there's, right. there's there's a, a nice balance. Yeah, there's a nice balance of understanding mm-hmm. and historical accuracy in right. in how um, in how people re- relate to this young man, mm-hmm. right, and his sexual preferences. So I think it's really interesting and a, and a good book. Definitely not for everybody, right? right. Not for all right. readers, but, but but definitely has a, a context that that is interesting for a particular audience. So yeah, that's a yeah. great one. That's one of the ones I was thinking of too because it's mm-hmm. gotten a lot of buzz yes. lately. So that's a really good one. Well, two great, two great books yeah. that are very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Megan. This has been wonderful chatting. i you. appreciated your time. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank Megan for coming around the Librarian's Table with me today. We've had a fantastic show. Our first two interviews were with Adam Gidwitz and Rachel Kamen, and we talked about the book The Inquisitor's Tale. Our last interview was with Professor John Austinson and we talked about diversity in young adult literature. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for
0: exploring with us.